From DLA Piper, this is the Beyond the Curve podcast. In this episode, Kathy Ruland, chair of the firm's U.S. corporate practice, and Marcy Fabrega, chief M&A counsel at Ecolab, discuss deal-making and their shared experiences as female leaders in the world of M&A. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Ruland, chair of DLA Piper's U.S. corporate practice and co-chair of our global corporate practice. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you Marcy Fabrega. Marcy is the chief M&A counsel with Ecolab, and she's been with the company for over 10 years. I've had the pleasure of working with Marcy for many years, and our focus today is on the very interesting world of mergers and acquisition. I'm really excited to have Marcy join us. So, Marcy, could you tell us a little bit about Ecolab? Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Kathy. So Ecolab is one of those really amazing companies that most folks have never heard about. We are primarily business to business and not consumer oriented. So the brand is not terribly well known outside of the customer industries we serve. But Ecolab is a Fortune 500 company based here in St. Paul, Minnesota. We have over 40,000 employees globally and serve customers in over 100 170 countries. So it's pretty expansive and pretty interesting from that aspect. Ecolab is the global leader in water hygiene and infection prevention solutions and services. And that really runs the gambit from everything as simple as hand soap and hand sanitizer to very sophisticated, automated water treatment solutions in industrial applications, large real estate establishments, paper processing, etc. It was founded nearly 100 years ago to develop economical cleaning solutions for hotels, but then expanded throughout all of hospitality and food and beverage manufacturing, healthcare, water treatment, and we're grounded in chemistry-based solutions. That's where Ecolab got its start, also related services and equipment, but the focus has really grown from being just on hygiene to also including sustainability goals for water and energy conservation. So that makes it a really motivating place to work. And it's such an interesting company. It touches so many industries. Tell us a little bit about your career path. What drew you to the M&A world? So I started practicing in private practice, as you mentioned, really focusing on different mergers, acquisitions, but also securities and general corporate work. I practiced with large Midwestern law firms, which typically are a little bit more general practice oriented in the corporate groups, not quite as pigeonholed into very narrow practice areas like some of the really, really large firms might be. So that was good experience to understand stand and develop an appreciation for all different types of transactional work. I did a little litigation also, which really turned out to be good experience. As I got more experienced, I did realize that I really particularly liked mergers and acquisitions. And that really stems from the fact that every deal has its own personality and you learn something new every time, whether it's about the technology or the business that you are working with or the people who are involved or the place in the world that it occurs. It's all really interesting. And Ecolab 
is the culmination of all that because we have global deals happening all around the world. Lots of different types of businesses, industry sectors that we participate in. And those industry sectors have evolved over time. We've done some major acquisitions. We entered the water treatment space in a big way about 10 years ago when we bought Nalco out of Chicago. And most recently, we divested our energy services business, which was primarily oil and gas production chemistry. It wasn't really core to the company, but a very complex transaction because it had been part of Nalco for decades. So all of those different aspects of the responsibilities and the company and the exposure makes it incredibly interesting. And that was a very interesting transaction with that global divestiture. It touched so many different countries. But you mentioned the complexity. And given the global deal, some of these transactions have so many different aspects to it. So let's discuss some of that complexity of putting a deal together and certainly within a matrix organization. So how do you approach that, Marcy, from your internal perspective? Sure. Well, from the way we have deals organized and analyze them, every deal really has a business goal, an economic component, and then some kind of a risk assessment, risk mitigation component. And it's the way those three elements are combined and balance each other that really dictates where you land on the deal terms. But fundamentally, the business goals always have to be there. The economics and the risk assessment and mitigation are the ones that can adjust a lot. But understanding the business goals and channeling the economics and the risk assessment around the business goals is really the fundamental critical factor. And then, of course, you always have to understand what the other side's business goals are. Oftentimes, they're more economic than anything else. But that being said, you don't have a deal unless both sides think there's a deal to be had. So finding that overlap is really part of that complexity that you talked about. Mm -hmm. And then within the organization, we are, I think you mentioned, a very matrixed organization. We have levels of corporate functions and business divisions, and those are more complex because of the different geographies we work in. So on a multi-jurisdictional, multi-divisional transaction, that's going to involve dozens and dozens, if not 100 people. So making sure that everybody is able to communicate with each other as to what our goals are, what we're trying to accomplish, how we're going to get there, how we're going to message to the other side, because not always, but most of the parties we're working with don't have necessarily a similarly complex structure. So we don't want our internal structure to ever get in the way of getting a transaction done. And that can be really challenging with a lot of the timing pressures that are out there for transactions, timing pressures that are probably not in our control, but need to be respected and managed in order to get the transaction done within a time frame that suits everyone. And I have seen you in action, Marcy, and I know it's very interesting when you have a company who may not be similarly sized to Ecolab, and it may be a family-owned business, and how well the company adapts to be able to align expectations mm-hmm. and the deal flow with different parties. So I think that's a really interesting comment. It makes me think about 
the communication, not only within your group and the different divisions, but also the communications with executive management, the CEO, the board. It's really important, as you know, to align expectations for the transaction. So how do you prepare for this? And how do you talk about the risk assessment with your executives and really navigating the business goals, balancing with any deal risk? So the first thing that comes to mind is that understanding the business and the business goals is really fundamental to approaching how to communicate with the various stakeholders. They speak in their language, so it's important to understand how the legal decision-making and the deal terms, whether it's the structure or the risk mitigation, how that impacts those business goals and what we're trying to get out of the transaction. It's also really important that we appreciate the impact to the other side. I mentioned that a little bit earlier, but understanding the goals of the other side is helpful to be able to find a place that both sides agree on and that both parties are comfortable and happy with the transaction that they make. Sometimes both sides are unhappy with it, but it's still better than walking away. (laughs) But the objective is always to get to a point that both sides and their teams are really happy with the future. So with that in mind, we're really talking about understanding and absorbing the facts, understanding their impact, but also relying on our experience and other deals and other situations, understanding our business, to be able to take a position or give advice when we don't have all of the information that we'd like to have. And we often also are trying to help the rest of our team be comfortable making decisions where we don't have all the information we'd like to have because our teams are very oriented towards having as perfect of information as is available. And in a M&A transaction, there's often not time or sometimes willingness to share the level of detail or the amount of information that most teams are used to working with in order to get to a decision point. So helping the teams deal with that uncertainty is one of the roles that the legal department and also other professionals within our organization who are used to M&A and regularly in that environment, that's a helpful role we can play. Sometimes we get to a point where we don't know what each other's risk tolerances are yet. We're still exploring where the goalposts are. And those are situations where sometimes we just have to let things play out. And then we figure out at the end of the day, whether there's actually a path that will be acceptable to both sides. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's a big game of chicken in order to decide if there's overlap. And that's not where anybody's goal is, but sometimes you end up there and it's a tough decision. But from our perspective, the important thing is making sure we're giving advice to our internal clients and our stakeholders so that they're able to make decisions and we're giving advice based on the best information that's available and the legal analysis that we are able to do. And if we've done that, we don't really have any regrets. But sometimes there's going to be situations where you just don't have as much information as you'd like. I think 
think it's really an interesting point you make about the information because oftentimes you'll see parties wait to bring up issues until they have the perfect amount of information, and too much time has gone. Past by that point, so I think it's really important to raise those issues early, to have that sense based on your experience of whether we're at、mm-hmm. the point where we need to raise this, and make sure that you do on a timely matter, so we don't get three weeks down the path and say, "Boy, I wish we would have talked about this earlier." So it's just one of those things that、exactly. you've gotten comfortable with over time, and certainly that aspect I think is very critical in building trust. Trust. Building trust with the business, with the executive team, with the board, and with outside counsel. So I know that you think a lot about that. Can you tell us a little bit about your strategy in terms of making sure you're building that trust along the way? Sure. The first thing I think is really to be knowledgeable, and being knowledgeable isn't just about being a super expert in. Mergers and acquisitions. I'm fond of saying that nobody within our business really cares if you can cite the last six major M&A cases in Delaware.、Mm-hmm. So it's not really about that kind of expertise. It's really about understanding the components of M&A, how the different terms will impact your business, and in order to do that, you really have to understand the business and the strategic goals that the business has. The terms of the M and A deal are secondary to that, so it's a concept that's woven into a lot of these questions we've been discussing. But it's really important, and you don't have to be inside counsel in order to be able to convey that value. I do think that it's a unique value that inside counsel can render. As effectively, more effectively, sometimes than outside counsel, it probably takes more effort for outside counsel to understand a business as fundamentally as inside counsel does. But even as outside counsel, I think it's really important to be pursuing that as an objective and asking questions. And most businesses will really appreciate those kinds of questions.、Mm-hmm. The next thing I think is really to be transparent. About what you know and what you don't know, it's fine to not know everything. I would be suspicious of somebody who purported to actually know everything. And the other component of that is really understanding what's knowable and what's not knowable. Feeds into what we were talking about earlier in terms of you're not going to have perfect information. There's also information you'd like to know, but you won't. It's just one of those things that's out there, and no amount of diligence is actually going to get you more comfortable. So, thinking about those things and talking about it with your team and helping them understand what information they're going to have or not have is really important. And the last thing is really just to be fair. Kindergarten playground politics kind of thing. It's a small world in M and A. You do come across each other time and again. Regardless of that, I just think fundamentally, you don't have to be mean. You don't have to raise your voice to be effective. You can be a very tough advocate while being respectful to the other side. And the lawyers and the M and A professionals that I've seen over many, many years who are the most effective at getting things done are the ones who are 
level-headed and practical and who really understand what the mutual goals are of both sides and are trying to accomplish those by making the pie bigger and finding creative solutions. And I think trying to be aggressive is rarely the way that you find those win-win solutions. Absolutely. No, I think those are really important points, Marcy. And I think one of the areas where you have certainly built trust also is with your partnership with the business development team. I know that you've worked with them for many years and together you've brought a lot of value to Ecolab. And I'm very interested to hear, without giving away too many of your secrets, of course, (laughs) how you prepare for negotiation with your business development team. First off, it really depends on the topic and who is involved and how much we've worked together before. There's a couple members of our business development, corporate development group, who I've worked with for over 10 years, and we can finish each other's sentences. You've seen it. (laughs) So there are certain topics that we've addressed many, many times in the past, and we can do on the fly. But most of the time, we do try to be proactive in terms of coordinating how we're going to negotiate a more extensive negotiation session. We'll always want to be aligned on the message that we're presenting, maybe coordinate strategies for staying on message when we know there are any number of ways you can get distracted. There's always a scope that you want to cover and maybe some boundaries that you want to stay away from. So having that communication with each other before is helpful. And then the final thing I think is really understanding who the audience is. Is it the people on the phone that you're talking to? It's always on the phone these days, but even if it's in person, or are you really trying to create a message that they're going to take back to their client? And are you really trying to speak to that client in a way that they will understand and be convinced by what you're telling them. And sometimes that message has to go through multiple channels, or sometimes the channels have to be adjusted. If the lawyer isn't conveying things the way you would like them to, sometimes you'll talk to your business people and have the business people have a separate discussion. So there's lots of different ways to skin the cat, if you will. And understanding those with the business development team and how we're going to approach it is a little bit different in every situation, but there's commonalities. And the longer you work with people, the smoother that becomes. Yeah. And really the partnership that you have with your business development team has enabled you to do that. I think it's interesting when you talk about staying on message and strategies for staying on message. So I think those are very important points. I'm really interested in your opinion on this next question. Do you think deals are getting harder, Marcy? Many look to the regulatory risk as regulatory bodies around the globe are ever-changing. We see more detail in merger and acquisitions, which assign risk to the parties in more detail than we've seen before. So I'm interested in your perspective on this. So like a lot of things, it depends. But generally, I would say yes. It depends mostly on whether you're a buyer or seller. I think that there's lots of money being thrown around these days, and it has really increased seller expectations to a level that seems 
a little irrational for those of us who have been practicing in a while. Ecolab, at least, were generally more an acquirer than a seller. The regulatory environment has gotten more enforcement-minded. It's less predictable. That actually is challenging for both buyers and sellers. The other big change, I would say, in the last 10 years or so is the rise of rep and warranty insurance in order to help mitigate risks and give sellers a little bit more of a clean slate to walk away from. And that does work. And it has gotten traction a lot more as a real solution to bridge that gap. But it's not a silver bullet for all issues. So that rep and warranty insurance market has gotten more educated. There's more availability, but it also isn't going to solve issues that are already out there. It really only solves unknown issues. So overall, I would say yes, harder, but a lot of the same tensions that have always been there. Yeah. Harder, still doable, always yep. interesting. Yep. <laughs> Speaking of which, how has COVID affected the negotiations and also the timing of getting deals done? Certainly in the global world, every country has had a different experience. What adjustments have you had to make with your team, the timing of the deals and how you're actually negotiating them? So it's interesting for us being in the hygiene and infection prevention space, this has really been a crazy time. All of the companies that are interested in selling and are having a great year that are in the same space have a pretty immediate desire to cash in. So attractive deals, everybody's really trying to get them done ASAP. So that timing component makes it really challenging. The due diligence and negotiation Timing hasn't really been that impacted. For a long time, most of the due diligence has been in electronic data rooms. We've been having conference calls instead of traveling as much as people used to. That was the case even before COVID. Now it's 100% instead of 85%. But the thing that's really been a lot harder is getting site visits and having the businesses have that kind of person-to-person -person interaction, not the lawyers as much, but more the business. And things like regulatory and environmental audits that would be done on site are difficult to schedule and coordinate transportation, particularly outside of the U.S. Mm -hmm. So that creates a little bit of a timing element. And generally, because of the lack of in-person meetings, there is a little bit less of a personal connection. Although, interestingly, I feel like with everybody working from home and zero adherence to office hours, <laughs> that concept doesn't exist anymore. It really has meant that everybody's calling in from their homes and their kids are around and their pets are around. And the opportunities to get to know each other on a personal level just stories about COVID puppies and things like that, that we never would have shared if we were sitting in our offices. So there's been a little bit of a plus side from that perspective, too. And I don't feel like we're totally isolated just because we haven't been able to have those in-person meetings. Doesn't mean that the regulatory and antitrust timing hasn't been negatively affected. I think that's probably getting a little better now. But we had a couple of deals in mid-2020, early 2020, that just got completely stalled while we were waiting for antitrust approval. Anyway, it's impacted everything, but I wouldn't say it's derailed everything. No, I think everybody's gotten very good. 
at business and negotiating and doing transactions and getting transactions closed from a remote perspective. But I like your story. It certainly has made some of the negotiations interesting and sometimes a little bit more human <laughs> with yes. some of the personal aspects that come along from doing business 24-7 from your home. <laughs> <laughs> so let's change gears a little bit, Marcy. We both know that leading women dealmakers are in the minority. How do you view your role as a role model, both within Ecolab, but also within our legal community? So it's an interesting question. I have always seen myself first as a professional, as an expert in the field. And yes, I have a unique perspective as a woman, I think, because we are in the minority, but I never want to be out there and seen as a great woman lawyer. I want to be a great lawyer who happens to be a woman. And throughout my career, I have felt that way. The next generation of women who are starting out still see mostly men in the room, mostly men partners on the phone, mostly men in investment banking roles and across the different kinds of professionals in mergers and acquisitions, it's still a very male-dominated field. So I think it's important that I do things like this podcast and speaking at CLE conventions and law firm conferences and things that are going on to be visible for that next generation of women. So set a good example so that they can see that there's a possibility to balance it. I have two kids. I'm married. I have a COVID puppy. We <laughs> moved. Everybody's got all kinds of stuff going on. And there's a way to balance it. And it's not always easy. It takes a lot of dedication. It helps to have a great team that you're working with, both at the office and at home. But those opportunities are out there. Sometimes they're hard to chase, but I want everybody to feel like if they want to chase them, they can. Absolutely. You've done a great job with that. Both I know as you mentor your team and include them in negotiations and discussions, but also speaking, which you do a lot of. And I feel that that really helps people from a teaching perspective and a mentoring perspective. And that's just terrific. Absolutely. But I know, Marcy, how hard you work and how <laughs> organized you are and how important Ecolab is. So, Marcy, this has been such a fantastic conversation. I'd love to hear your words of advice for those women lawyers who are seeking to do more M&A with the hopes of someday having the opportunity to be in your position as chief M&A counsel for a Fortune 500 company, doing global deals, and being part of a really exciting profession. What would those words of advice be? Well, there's a list, but I think getting a lot of deals under your belt is really a good way to start. If you're starting out, they don't have to all be M&A transactions, but any kind of a transactional opportunity is a good experience to develop negotiating and drafting skills and to start understanding the interpersonal dynamics that are such a fundamental part of M&A. I also think it's important to be willing to step out of your comfort zone and become a little bit of a jack of all trades, knowing a little bit about employment and intellectual property and environmental comes up in most of the transactions that we do. And it's helpful in managing the diligence and 
anticipating and solving issues and thinking out of the box on different ways to bridge gaps, networking, getting to know people across your organization or with your client is really helpful as well. The team on any M&A deal is almost always going to be multifunctional and can span across different divisions or industries and geographies. So knowing who those people are and being comfortable to be able to call them with questions Getting to know people helps ensure that they'll pick up the phone and help you out. I always tell people that they should always feel free to come to me when they have any questions. And oftentimes I might not be able to answer their questions, but because I've built this network of people that I know throughout our organization, I can usually connect them with somebody who can or who at least is closer to it than I am. We talked about understanding the business before. That's always the case. And finally, as a practical matter, I think everyone needs to appreciate that there's not actually an abundance of positions like the one I have. Being in-house M&A counsel at a Fortune 500 company There just aren't that many companies that have that kind of an organizational structure. So if that really is your goal, you do have to be thoughtful about the career paths you might take to get there and be intentional about seizing those opportunities as they come along and also appreciate that that path or the position might not be the same everywhere. Ecolab is organized so that we have someone in my position and it's dedicated to M&A. But lots of companies are organized different ways and they have their division general counsel or their general counsel is the person who is leading M&A, but also doing other stuff. And that's great as well. It's all good experience to do M&A, whichever path you follow to get to that role or having those kinds of responsibilities. It really takes both M&A field experience and understanding the business. And that's the thing I keep coming back to because it's always omnipresent, but you don't necessarily have to do it in that order. You don't have to do 15 years of private practice specialized in M&A in order to be able to go in-house. You can be in private practice for a little while or become really a top-notch expert in understanding your business and then start developing responsibilities for mergers and acquisitions along the way. And in that case, I would say really leverage the outside counsel experts that you're working with because they're the ones that can help you look smart. And that's important too. So yeah, that's it. (laughs) Just a couple of things. (laughs) It's so interesting, Marcy. And I really appreciate you joining us today, sharing these words of wisdom, talking to us about M&A, the important role that you're playing internally for the company, but externally as well. So really appreciate your time and your leadership and the fun words of wisdom here today. Thank you, Kathy. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction.
This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast. 